0: Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bennett Kerber, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew McElwain Bell about his new book, The Origins of Southern College Football How an Ivy League game became a Dixie tradition. Andrew Bell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Benna. Great to be here. Yeah. And Andrew, I was wondering before we kind of get into the, the questions about the book, if you could uh, perhaps begin the interview by just introducing yourself to the audience and tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure thing. Um, I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and probably like many places in America, football and basketball. were the two most popular sports and I've, I've been a football fan my whole life. I've played the annual Turkey bowl games at Thanksgiving in the backyard with cousins and brothers and, and uncles. So, uh, and then started playing organized football later on. But uh, all throughout this period, my grandfather, who had gone to Hampton, Sydney college, it's a small liberal arts college in Virginia. He went there in the 1920s. Um, and back there, Hampton, back in those days, Hampton Sydney would play bigger schools like the university of Virginia and Florida even. So I would hear these stories, from my grandfather about his college career and his, his glory days on the gridiron. So it like it really piqued my interest in the game. Uh, and finally, as we were talking, Bennett, uh, uh, right before the show started, um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Alabama in the 1990s. So I was a student there when Gene Stallings won a national championship. And as you you know can guess, it, it made a huge impression on me and contributed to my passion for college football.
0: Yeah, we, and, and as Andrew mentioned, we did chat before. I'm an LSU alum, so I have this kind of southern <laughs> passion for college football. Uh, actually, whenever I was an undergrad, I uh, I was there whenever Alabama beat LSU in the 2011 National Championship game, so it wasn't as good of an experience for me. But, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> I, I, I gave Andrew my respect for the Alabama program, for sure. They've accomplished some great stuff. Right, uh, and, yeah. it,
1: and frankly, it's hard. You know, I tried to – an historian needs to check his, his prejudices and predilections at the door when he's writing about or she's writing about a, a subject. And so I tried not to spend too much time on Alabama football in the in the book. There are a lot of other programs out there, and I recognize that.
0: Yeah, no, and I thought you did an excellent job, and I appreciate it. you in the, in the introduction. You kind of come out and say that. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm an Alabama fan, but I'm going to try to put my biases aside. So that, I think I'm yep. well done.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Um, so, yeah, I'm interested about the project itself. So how did you come to write? And I, I'm sure kind of the personal connections, but um, what made you decide to, to get into writing a project about the origins of Southern College football?
1: Well, as I said, this was a labor of love for me as a fan of the game. Um, I also have an academic background. I uh, did a Ph.D. in 19th century history from George Washington University, and I've written a couple of other history books. So I have a, a good grasp of the period. In which college football was conceived the uh, industrial era slash progressive period but it was natural curiosity really i wanted to know why college football in particular and not just football in general or, or high school football or professional football but college football is the south's most popular pastime i think anybody knows that you ask the common person on the street you know what's the most popular sport in the south and they would say college football um and i've i've met many people uh, in my life from the South, they will rearrange their personal lives in order to accommodate uh, their favorite team schedules. And For example, I don't talk about this in the book, of course, but I had a fraternity brother in college. He, his girlfriend's parents had driven up from Miami to take them out to dinner, and they were a very serious couple at that point. And he uh, he politely refused. He said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go out to dinner, uh, Alabama's playing tonight. Um, He apologized, but, you know, they were completely baffled by this and I think pretty offended. So the, the passion is just unparalleled. It's Saturday is, you know, a high holy day in the South. Football is a college football is a religion.
0: And like I said, I'm from the South, Louisiana, so it resonates with me. I know the wedding seasons, it's better safe just not to even schedule a wedding in the fall. That's right. You know, cause unless you want someone watching a football game during the wedding ceremony, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous game to play. It really is.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: um, so something, you know, I'm, I'm a college football fan, and, and maybe some of the listeners know this as well. You, you always hear about the first college football game between Princeton and Rutgers in 1869. However, before I read your book, I was not aware of this Uh, very interested to learn that the first game almost occurred in the south at Washington and Lee. So uh, what happened? Why didn't this game occur? And and, um, also kind of a follow up question is what would this game have looked like? I assume it wouldn't have looked like uh, our, our, our current day college football games.
1: No, it would not. And that's a good point. Um, Washington and Lee, for your listeners who may not know, is a, a small college in Lexington, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley about half an hour from where I grew up. Um, the Princeton Rutgers game, which is considered to be the first intercollegiate game in history, occurred in November 1869. So Washington and Lee University had scheduled a game against the Virginia Military Institute, which is directly across the street from Washington and Lee's campus in October, 1869. So that's one month before the, the Princeton Rutgers game. Uh, that had to be canceled because of bad weather. There was a rainstorm. Uh, but it would have been America's first intercollegiate game if it had happened. And as you said, these early games were played before the rules of football were codified. Maybe you've uh, heard the term scientific football from that, from that period. It just means it's an organized game with a... a you know, direct written down set of rules. Uh, that didn't exist in 1869. Um, different regions of the country played different by different rules. And so, if you had witnessed, let's say, a game in the 1860s at Washington Lee, in some instances, I found in my research, there would be as many as 100 players uh, on each team. And yeah, it's primarily a kicking game at that point, but really, there aren't a lot of rules. So, you could you know, cheap shot another player, you could carry the ball, you could uh, punch the ball, slap it, however you needed to advance it forward. It was um, a really Darwinian kind of struggle, if you want to look at it that way. So rules and team sizes are irrelevant in this period. And as I said in the book, the early football games at Washington League, they're very more like chaotic clashes between rowdy undergraduates um, rather than any sort of organized game. But that's what it would have looked like. It's mob football is another way to describe this period of football's development.
0: So it sounds like, yeah, people are concerned about the violent nature of football today, it would have been much more violent back then.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People, you know, were seriously injured and for a long time, uh, it was not unusual for somebody to die during a game. And we'll talk more about that as our, our conversation unfolds, I know.
0: Yeah. And so like, uh, since the Washington league game uh, did not occur, um, You know, you note in the book, college football was largely a northern game in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, And during a period of great sectional divide, we're talking right after the Civil War, Reconstruction, um, why did Southerners adopt the sport? Um, And I was also fascinated to learn about something you called the Sir Walter Scott effect. Um, and, And how did that help make the game more acceptable to the Southern upper class?
1: Sure. And these are good questions. Um, I'll answer them this way. The South's defeat during the Civil War, it left it with a massive inferiority complex. And it, you can imagine the South after the Civil War is like post-war Germany or Japan. Okay, we've lost this war, so uh, we need to look to our conqueror's institutions for, or for guidance. How do we rebuild our society? And so Northern universities in particular are seen as bastions of enlightenment. They have uh, academic curricula and methods that Southerners wanted to reproduce at their own schools. So at the same time, Walter Camp at Yale, largely uh, known as the father of American football, but others are beginning to develop this scientific football game and it's becoming popular at places like Yale and Harvard. And so Southern educators want their schools to be every bit as good as Yale or Harvard, uh, adopt this new game. They insisted that football be played on their campuses as well. And so in regards to your question about the Sir Walter Scott effect, is something I mentioned. Sir Walter Scott was the the author of Ivanhoe that uh, it was really made a big. Impression on Southerners in both the pre-Civil War and post-Civil War period. It uh, rekindled interest in the medieval era in the South. So Southerners have a, a long imagined their region as the last remaining stronghold of sort of aristocratic privilege in the United States. We see all these, uh, you know, immigrants coming in in the nineteenth century to places like New York and Chicago, and there's this tumultuous democracy and and you know, energy, but also disorder on some level. And Southerners like to, to fancy themselves as, uh, you know, a much more orderly society an enchanted land, as I say, inhabited by fair damsels and men of chivalry who are championing these virtues from the, from the medieval era or a bygone era. And so football's popularity comes on the scene, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, the media, Southern media, they start employing these uh, Arthurian metaphors when writing about this new sport because people aren't familiar with it. So football players are padded knights or uh, long-haired knights of the football arena. They're performing in front of beautiful young women and escorted by these gallant young cavaliers. So it's these descriptions in the media that that re- reinforce the myth of the Southern aristocrat, which in turn helps the, the South accept this game more quickly because it already fits into a cultural pattern or a self-image that the South already had.
0: Yeah, and, and also I, I was uh, learned from reading your book as well that um, John Hopkins um, in particular played a pretty important role in the emergence of Southern football. And you know I, initially whenever I think of, of Southern football and just the South in general, John Hopkins doesn't kind of jump straight to mind. Um, yeah. So how was it that John Hopkins uh, became so influential in the emergence of Southern football?
1: Yeah, and Johns Hopkins was America's first research university. Um, it was based on the, uh, the German model. It was founded in 1876, right about when football is beginning to gain traction in Ivy League schools. And Southerners uh, really were interested, a lot of them, in just getting off the farm, getting an education, getting a better job, uh, saw this as an appealing place to, to study. Um, I found interestingly that a lot of the people who founded football programs in the South studied chemistry at Johns Hopkins. Um, that was interesting, but it's partially geography. Johns Hopkins is in Baltimore. It's closer to the South in places like, like uh, Harvard or Yale. And a lot of faculty there uh, were Southerners themselves. So that's also appealing. And in the late 19th century, Southern alumni uh, found little academic colonies or posts, if you want, um, from Hopkins that are, you know, all the way from Virginia to Texas. I found that that by 1896, over 30 schools had at least one Johns Hopkins faculty member um, on, on the payroll. So these included people like Charles Hurdy, right? He's the father of Georgia football. He got a PhD in chemistry at Johns Hopkins or George Petrie uh, founded the Auburn football program. He did a PhD in history at Johns Hopkins. And Charles Coates, a uh, chemistry graduate student, they founded LSU's program. I'm sure you know who Coates has been at. Um, you know, these are, these are guys who are being first exposed to the game at Johns Hopkins, but going there to get these advanced degrees to be able to help their home states uh, build successful universities.
0: Yeah, and I took courses in Coates Hall at LSU's campus, so yeah, very right. familiar with the name. Sure. Uh, now, uh, Southern college football, as you mentioned, by the 1890s and early 1900s, certainly, um, you know, it seems to have become more commonplace in the South, and the students uh, seem to really take to the violent nature of the game in particular. We noted it, it was a very violent game at this time. Um, however, you note that it almost led to the sport's demise, that violent nature of the game. So how did the violence both help college football become popular in the South, but almost lead to its demise at certain schools?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, And as I argue in the introduction, violence has been part of the the Southern experience from the very beginning. And uh, that's largely, it's, you know, an uncomfortable subject uh, due to a dependence on unfree labor, right? First in the form of indentured servants. Uh, And then later, uh, slaves, right? So keeping these laborers in line requires a tolerance for violence or required a tolerance for violence that just became part of the South's cultural fabric, ultimately. And so another layer to that is the concept of honor, which is very strange to modern American ears, but it's uh, honor played a role in in normalizing bloodshed. And when I say honor, I don't just mean uh, gaining the respect of your friends or, or family or whatever, but it's, it's something that holds Southern society together in this era of, um, very informal networks, right? So you don't have honor or you're not considered an honorable person. Uh, you may not get credit at your local bank, or you may not be given a promotion in the military. Um, you know, this affects your life. So because of the importance of honor in, in holding Southern society together with so much at stake. Southerners uh, could be expected at times to fight and even kill if it was necessary to preserve their honor. And so that's already there as part of the South's culture before this game is introduced in the late 1890s. But it makes it much more, uh, a lot easier rather to accept the game when you already have these preconceived notions of, of honor. Uh, in addition, the Southerners have always been impressed uh, by martial displays, you know, military displays and things like that. And there's a certain element of that in the game of football. Um, you know, these are uniformed young men out exhibiting their talents in front of thousands of spectators. So, on the other side of that, though, they're conservative Southerners. Most of the time, they were older. Uh, many of them were religious. They're they're horrified by this violence that's associated with football. Uh, they viewed it as pointless. They would embrace, on the one hand, a purposeful violence, and that's a that's a fine line there. For example. I came across a letter in the University of Virginia archives from a uh, Confederate guerrilla fighter named John Mosby. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of him. Uh, the Grey Ghost is his nickname. And he he sent countless young men to their graves during the Civil War. He compares college football to cockfighting. He says, this is completely pointless. Uh, it's, it's gratuitous and it's, it's driven by greed, right? People just want to make money off the game. Um, there are a lot of people from that generation who agree with John Mosby. And that's, I think uh, it's really difficult to sort of parse out those differences, but I found it in the letters. Football is a young, exciting new game that the post-Civil War South, the next generation is eager to embrace, but they're getting, they're getting pushback from the old guard who are running the universities at that point still. And so football, uh, in fact, is temporarily banned. If you can believe it, um, intercollegiate uh, road games are banned at Alabama for a period. They're banned at Wake Forest. They're banned at Washington, Lee, other places like that in an attempt to dampen enthusiasm for the sport. But, you know, young people uh, are the same in any century. They're going to push back against authority and say, no, we like this game. It's fun. Uh, You know, it's a way to demonstrate our Manliness and virtue, and uh, oh, guess what? We're getting a lot of media attention and and attention from women, right? Uh, that's really exciting. And so, football continues to flourish at Southern universities in spite of this pushback. And as you say, it, it, part of that is the violence associated with it. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting to watch.
0: Yeah, and on this note of the the tension between kind of the old guard and the and the the young Southerners who are enjoying the game. Um, I was fascinated, again, I think the the common theme is I I learned a lot of new stuff. I pride myself as a Southern College football fan, but um, one historical figure that I had never heard of, um, uh, who I would say after reading the book was potentially the savior of Southern College football, was the mother of Georgia player Richard Vonalbade, or Von Gammon. Um, Gammon. Yeah, could you tell the listeners more about this fascinating story and how, as you put it, Von Gammon's mama became a Southern heroine of sorts.
1: Yeah. Um, Von Gammon grew up in Rome, Georgia. He was a Georgia native. He played at uh, UGA. Um, Tragically, he was killed during a game in October 1897. That was uh, Georgia Bulldogs versus the University of Virginia. Big crowd there, including the governor of Georgia, a man named William Atkinson. Um, We know that early in the third quarter, uh, Virginia handed off the ball to a halfback named Julian Hill. Hill was a tough guy slammed into the Georgia D line. And somehow in this play, uh, Gammon attempted to tackle Hill, uh, when the, you know, the, the scrum cleared, uh, Gammon was lying motionless on the, on the field. His teammates carried him to the sidelines. Uh, doctors looked at him. He was rushed to Grady hospital and he died of his injuries at Grady hospital. And we don't, It's impossible for me to speculate on the precise cause of death without medical records. That would be irresponsible. But our best guess is that Gammon died from complications caused by a concussion and skull fracture. Uh, However, the importance of this, it unleashed this tidal wave, as I I describe it, of anti-football sentiment across the South Uh, and in Georgia. These, you know, a number of Georgia players, including their star halfback, guy named J.T. Moore, they just quit the team, right? This is not worth it. It's not worth it seeing my my teammates die uh, the media are running these bombastic op-eds about uh, football must go we have to stop the deadly game and the death knell of football and so forth and what this leads to uh the georgia general assembly if you can believe it uh rushes through a bill abolishing football in the peach state so you can imagine georgia without football it's it's hanging in the balance um But as we all know from our civics class, right, Bennett, that uh, a bill cannot become law until the governor signs the bill. Uh, Governor Atkinson, who had witnessed the death of Von Gammon on the field, uh, isn't sure about what to do. And so, as I describe in the book, Von Gammon's mother, a woman named Rosalind Gammon, writes a letter to her uh, assemblyman in the Georgia General Assembly. And, you know, I won't read the entire letter for your audience here, but but the key sentence, I think, that sums up her position. She says, uh, grant me the right to request that my boy's death should not be used to defeat the most cherished object of his life, beating Georgia football. And so that letter, uh, you know, we can say had a, a big impact on, on the outcome of this bill, and ultimately Atkinson uh, vetoes it. So football is saved in the state of Georgia. And Rosalind Gammon becomes sort of the, the heroine, the, the mother of Southern college football, if you want to look at it that way, who sacrificed her son right, on the gridiron uh, in the name of this sport. And this is a period when a lot of mothers and, and sisters and, and women are, are still grieving the losses of, of men killed during the American Civil War. So it resonates with a lot of people. And I found that in 1921, the University of Virginia presented a plaque to Georgia uh, honoring uh, Von Gammon's sacrifice and his mother's uh, sacrifice as well. So it's, you know, very emotional for people at this time. And and that plaque, by the way, is still hanging in um, uh, Buttsmere Heritage Hall at at the University of Georgia campus. So anybody who's there can go out and take a look at it and they'll, they'll know the story of Von Gammon and how his mother's letter. Uh, help preserve the sport at a time when it was very real possibility that football would have been permanently banned.
0: Yeah. And as you know, and I, I think it's it's hard for us to appreciate today that, yeah, the, the future was not inevitable of college football, not just becoming popular, but lasting uh, beyond right, that period. Right.
1: Well, a lot of people are pushing for baseball to become the, the South's official sport. There's a lot of money in baseball at this point, but, um, you know, that, that may be another conversation for another time. And I do cover some of that in the book but it's the popularity on southern campuses of the game is what is what keeps the momentum going
0: well another story that you know I, I had a little familiarity with um some from some of my own work um but i'm always surprised to hear that that most people don't know about this famous southern team uh the incredible 1899 swanee iron man team that's right um so could you tell us more about um this team kind of why they've gone down in football lore um but also what does it say about southern football at the time that the national media they're largely covering harvard yale penn princeton uh that right. season instead of swanee's incredible undefeated season right
1: yeah and for your listeners uh, the university of the south or swanee uh tigers in 1899 they were known as the iron men they went 12 and 0 that season they won the um Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association Championship. They beat UNC, the Tar Heels 5-0 to uh, in, in Atlanta. But what's remarkable about this team is the Swanee team played five back-to-back road games in only six days. And in addition to that, pulled off five shutout victories. So in under a week, right, they're playing five road games and winning five shutouts. So you can imagine that no AD in his right mind is going to contemplate such a thing in this era where you know, schedules are, are very well choreographed and, and, you know, there's plenty of rest and recuperation for players. Um, these guys basically get on a train and go all around the South and, and play all comers and, and, you know, resoundingly beat them. So uh, that in itself means that, that Squanny has, has earned a leg, a, an eternal place in the, the history books. Of Southern college football, but sadly, as you point out, the sports media of the time uh, are primarily focused on Ivy League game uh, programs and Midwestern programs, and so Swanee's achievement is largely unreported. It goes unnoticed. Uh, For example, the 1899 All-America team did not feature a single Southern player. They had a a segregated list. The All-Southern team, they did have some Swanee players on it, but that they're not getting the national recognition that, that. Ivy, Yale, Princeton, uh, Penn—all the other programs up north are getting so. For all it had accomplished since the end of the Civil War, this New South, as it's advertising itself to be, is still viewed by most people in the country as provincial. Right? It's a provincial backwater with these second-rate universities and and you know second-rate football teams. So, you know, jumping forward, it's really not until 1961. Uh, during the Kennedy era, there's a new magazine that comes out called Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated does a story on the Iron Men. I looked at a lot of the research that the reporter for uh, Sports Illustrated was doing. A lot of letters went back and forth between the players from that era to get the details. Um, America rediscovers the, the Ironmen. And, you know, fast forward to 2012, the College Football Hall of Fame did a, a Facebook poll And asked fans to choose the greatest college football team of all time. And so, Swanee was the winner, hands down, if you can believe that. They beat out a lot of other legendary teams. Your listeners have, I'm sure, encountered the uh, 1961 Crimson Tide, the 1971 Nebraska Cornhuskers. You know, all of them uh, were considered second rate next to Swanee. So, um, Swanee was really, as I say in the book, the South's first dominant uh, program or team. And their manager, really, his motivation for taking him on the road that long was just gate receipts. He needed to make up for some lost money, and he thought this would be a good way. Away games paid better than home games, so he wanted to turn a profit. Um, and, well, it ended up being this, this incredible accomplishment, and I was enthralled looking through this. I was just picturing you know, how much effort was required uh, uh, to keep up the pace that that long of a road trip it's it's really remarkable and i hope people i hope you enjoyed it reading about it
0: oh it certainly and, and I, it's always uh you know i i've brought it up to a few friends since i've learned about the, the 1899 team it's like right. yeah you would imagine alabama georgia some of these big names kind of being the the perhaps the greatest southern team of all time no it's little swanee right yep. yeah <laughs> to see. so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a crazy story but also like you said an impressive feat that's Never going to be reduplicated. Um, yeah. Because most people and, would never <laughs> try to attempt it. Right. Um, now, also something that I found very admirable in the book um, is that you were able to interweave kind of the larger socioeconomic and political context of not just Southern society, but American society into the development of football. Uh, for instance, I liked you. You mentioned uh, Coach John Heisman's play calling innovations, and you connected that with. Social Darwinism that was prominent during that time. Um, So was making these larger connections to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era intentional on your part?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I made that clear. I hope I made it clear that this book is as much a story of America in the Gilded Age or Industrial Era and Progressive Era as it is just a history of Southern college football. The reason for that is you can't understand a nation's sporting life without also understanding its history and culture. Um, as I explained, you know, there's this history of, of violence and the concept of honor that predates football that helps accelerate its popularity. So you really need to, if you want to understand sports in America, you need to understand something about American history and culture itself. And so I chose football as a prism uh, through which to to examine the United States' transformation during this period. So it goes from sort of a laissez-faire, uh, uh, you know, society to a bureaucratized one between uh, the end of the Civil War and, you know, say 1920 is about where my book ends or World War I. And football parallels that metamorphosis in American society, right? Initially, football is, as I said, this disorganized, chaotic, mob football enterprise that over time uh, gets codified. Their rules, their committees, their middle-class managers, uh, the coaches become managers rather than just volunteers, right? Who are students themselves or maybe faculty. So football parallels that, that those changes, that evolution in American society. So you can really look at both and, and see them following each other very closely. And so, and I said to a friend casually to, um, you know, this is a, a history book disguised as a sports book or a sports book disguised as a history book, however you want to look at it, right? It has both uh, for for people who are fans of the game, but also want to learn something about their, their country's history.
0: Yeah, but, I think that's what I was just about to say. It, it really appeals to a broad audience. Like if you if you view yourself as a football fan, you'll enjoy it. If you view yourself just as a fan of history in general, um, it really becomes a book for everybody because of that. So, I, again, I thought it was a, a, a well very well done on that front.
1: I appreciate that. It's a bit of a risk. You know, you get your hard, hardcore football fans out there. Well, why isn't there more about this game and that game? And, you know, professional historians who are always going to be somewhat skeptical about anything. But um, and you know that well. But, yeah, so it's a reflection of the period Uh, when you talked about social Darwinism. uh, Your listeners may not know social Darwinism really isn't a concept from Charles Darwin, but rather a uh, English academician named Herbert Spencer. And he coined the phrase survival of the fittest, which everybody's heard. Uh, So he's inspired by Charles Darwin, though, and his theories on natural selection. Spencer says that human beings are just like every other living thing on the planet. They uh, benefit from cutthroat competition. So competition, you know, weeds out weaklings and lets the strongest and smartest people in any society emerge. And so uh, this is being taught at Yale precisely when... Uh, Walter Camp is creating these rules of football and has a lot of influence on the development of the game at that point. So it's uh, almost as if, you know, any all is fair in football and war and love. We can say maybe John Heisman, as you mentioned, is is applying this logic to the football teams he coach, uh, you know, at Georgia Tech, at Auburn, uh, very briefly at Clemson. So, you know, everything's fair. Uh, Heisman employs the, you know, hidden ball trick, for example, in a game against uh, Auburn. Or, uh, you know, Reynolds Titchener is the the uh, player who uses that trick initially at, at Heisman's behest. He would have patches that look like football sewn onto players' uniforms, so to fool defenses, right? Or uh, they put straps on the pants of some players so the lineman could, you know, toss a running back over the defensive line into the end zone. I mean, all these things are just considered... Fair play, part of the game, and that 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 social Darwinistic ethos that's you know prevalent in that period is contributing to these these uh, what would be considered unfair plays in the 21st century, but not in the late 19th.
0: Well, I, I also, you know, we we kind of talked earlier about the college football being a northern game and then it becomes you know a little bit more entrenched in the south but certainly not inevitable that it was going to become as you put it a a dixie tradition so um for you what was the turning point in southern college football when did the sport you know quote-unquote make it in the south and become kind of entrenched as part of the, the culture
1: it's a good question and i think most of your listeners who have studied college football would point to uh, you know, the 1926 uh, Rose Bowl game between Alabama and the University of Washington. Uh, Alabama squeaks out a victory as the, it's called the game that changed the South, right? But I, I want to step back from that or explain why uh, that game is considered the game that changed the South. Football, first of all, has been part of the Southern experience as long as the South has exists. Uh, the English, I talked about this briefly who colonized Jamestown are are shocked to see Powhatan Indians playing a version of football. Um, It's not the same that the English are used to in their villages, mob football games. And I encourage your listeners, if they have time, you know, Google Atherston ball game. Just Google Atherston ball game. Take a look at what pops up. That's a mob football game that's been played in England for a thousand years. Uh, or Royal Shrovetide Football might be another example they could Google and take a look at. So these early versions of football are carried over to the New World, uh, as Europeans, or English in particular, are settling North America. Um, So the rules of football, though, aren't really codified until the late 1800s, 19th century. So uh, why is the 1926 Rose Bowl known as the game that changed the South? Well, a lot of it has to do with the changes in media. Uh, Most people in 1920, for example, don't own a radio. But by the end of that decade, uh, most American households do have at least one radio. So you can listen to the game on the radio, which has this outsized cultural impact. And you get to know the individual names of the players and the coaches. And there is this uh, celebrity worship Cult of celebrity, if you want to call it that, that's developing in the 1920s. And in that period, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin in the movies, or uh, Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs in 1927, the Fighting Irish at Notre Dame uh, become household names. A lot of that has to do with these these changes in media. Um, in addition to that, you see uh, proliferation of magazines and newspapers and coverage of these events, which means that games like you know, Swanee's road games in 1899 or even Georgia Tech's uh, undisputed national championship in 1917 aren't getting the same media coverage that the 1926 uh, Alabama Crimson Tide are. So it's, it's a really important to provide historical context to all of these events. And why is that, you know, so well known, uh, the Rose Bowl victory versus Swanee? Right, winning a national championship over UNC or a Southern championship over UNC in 1899. Well, it, a lot of it's media, a lot of media hype. That's that's what this game is in part. And it's
0: and it's only grown, right? <laughs> it's, now, only grown. it's only grown. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so uh, I know you were talking about, um, you know, and also you mentioned your grandfather at the beginning. I found it very touching in the epilogue, um, kind of your connection uh, to to your youth and kind of how that. Uh, Developed your passion. It was it was really well done, and um, you actually note that nostalgia, in your opinion, plays a large part in uh, college football's continued popularity in the South and across the country. Um, so, can you expand on that for us and the kind of the importance of nostalgia in college football?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, football, I think, connects us with the past. Uh, I quote James Michener in the book. He's an author. He wrote a book called Sports in America. And he said, most of life's a falling away. You, you gradually surrender the dream, right? And sports, uh, it's dramatic material because of, of how fast, you know, our lives progress. You know, we, we hit the climax early and then it's a, a decline after that. So part of the reason, I, for me, I think college football is popular is a lot of us, um, you know, can live vicariously through young men in the prime of their lives. If it's only for 60 minutes, we get to watch... Uh, this exciting pageantry and, and athletic prowess and display on the field and remember what it was like to be that you know young man with with optimism and limitless energy. And you know you throw in with that all these rituals that that southern programs have and you begin to think about relatives from your past who uh, attended these games and if they could somehow, you know, come back and be here with us again, they would enjoy the game in its present form just as much as we do. And it, so it links us. It's part of, I think, the cultural glue that holds the South together uh, or gives it a sense of itself. Football is a big part of that. And uh, I think it's had m- mostly a positive influence, or at least the positive outweighs the negative in my assessment to this point. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future with all these changes that are happening in the game. But uh, it's really important it that the, the smell of the turf right the the sound of those drums those unique drums that that college marching bands have or you know you hear those shoulder pads clack it's just it's really it dredges up a lot of feelings in in southern people's minds and hearts
0: yeah and Pretty, like i said you know being a southerner myself i mean i i still get chills just thinking about some of the saturday college football games and and you're certainly right. It's some of the, some of your greatest memories in the, on Saturdays in the South, kind of getting the pageantry of the game. Um, oh, so, yeah, yeah if, if for the listeners, if you've never been to a big college football game, do yourself a favor, go to one and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. It's, uh, it's a new experience.
1: Yep. High holy day in the South is Saturday. Oh, make, yeah. sure you, make sure you go to church, yep. the stadium.
0: <laughs> well, and you mentioned the changes because now this is going to be for our, our, the listeners that might be college football fans, um, you know, This is kind of a, uh, I don't know, a moment of reckoning for college football, perhaps. There's, you know, NIL legislation, name, image, and likeness bills uh, where players can be compensated for their own likeness and conference expansion. I think uh, USC and UCLA in California, they're about to become members of the Big Ten. SEC is about to get Texas and Oklahoma. Um, So, you know, people are wondering what's the future of college football. Um, what's it going to look like? What are the changes? So, um, I'm curious. As, as a fan of both uh, the history of college football and college football fan yourself, uh, what do you think? Will will the sport look much different in five, ten, or fifteen years? And and maybe for us SEC fans, uh, most importantly, will the will the SEC continue to reign supreme?
1: Oh boy! Yeah. Well. Predicting the future is risky business, Bennett, but uh, I, you know, especially for an historian, I can only stick to what the documents say. Uh, taking off my scholar's cap, putting on my fan hat, I, I admit to being somewhat concerned about the future of college football. Uh, I don't want it to become wholly indistinguishable from professional football. I, I really think part of the appeal to me is the messiness, the, the quirky traditions and the endless arguments over who should be ranked number one. I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the time before the college football playoff, right? It's just what the media thought were were the number one team is, is what we went with. And so the expansion of the playoff, NIL deals, all that, the transfer portal, they do have some, some merits. They're not without their merits. I, I think, though, that they're eroding gradually our regional differences and, and ending – this concept of amateur athletics, right? You're at college to study, to get a degree, but to become a well-rounded person, and part of that is participation in athletic events, and and football is one of those. Um, Money, and I I don't want to sound as if I'm naive, money's always been part of college football, primary motivator, I found that certainly. In my research, uh, you know, there were ringers paid, guys, you know, would enroll in classes and never attend just because they were big guys and they'd go out and put them out on the field or they, you know, you had a lot of say medical students at Vanderbilt, I found who were suspiciously big uh, out playing football on the side. So it's always been, uh, there's been corruption associated with, with football largely driven by greed and and money, but it's so blatant now and obvious and out in the open. uh, It makes me concerned for what the future of, of college football you know, will be, I think, what gives me some hope are those double-A, AA, triple-A conference games where they're kind of under the radar, the media don't care about them. But, you know, hey, I want to watch Randolph-Macon play Hampton-Sydney or, or Washington-Lee play football on a Saturday. It's, there's a purity to that, that level of, uh, you know, connection with the past, as I said, but also watching this is part of a young person's development. Not everything, not their just their career necessarily, but learning valuable lessons on the football field, which we all have. Those of us who have played.
0: Yeah, no, well said, and, and I think uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the D three schools too. Some of these smaller schools, um, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about college football, people kind of forget about um, those games happening on smaller campuses, which are which are just important in many ways, right? It's they're undergoing the same thing, maybe not the same crowd and media coverage. Um, But, you know, we can't forget about those programs and all this conversation about NIL and expansion. Absolutely. Now, um, you know, Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time and and I really appreciate the conversation. But uh, before we go, I was wondering if um, you have any projects you're working on now or on the horizon, something you might be interested in and if you could share that with us.
1: Yeah, well, I'm working on a second edition of this book uh, with a new afterword. So I hope your listeners will consider buying that copy or even an existing copy uh, for friends, for family members, maybe a dad, an uncle for the holidays. That'd be great. Uh, I believe it or not, I don't get rich writing these books. <laughs> they, you know, people read them and, and they're very complimentary. I do get some letters sometimes from fans, uh, but uh, it's available through Amazon. You can just click on there, the origins of Southern college football, Andrew Bell, uh, or the LSU Press website if you want to buy directly from the publisher. It's also good. I know you went to LSU, so I'll do a plug for LSU. But yeah, a second edition, I, I hope, will fill in some gaps that are missing from the first edition.
0: No, and I, I highly, I'll second Andrew there. It's, it's a great book for any college football fans, not just Southern college football fans, but. Uh, you know, if you're from the South, you will I think it like you said, it makes a great gift for Christmases, birthdays, all that stuff for the for the Southern college football fan in your life. Um, but no, highly recommend it. Um, so during this, uh, the peak of the college football season, if you want to learn more how we got here to this craziness, that's that's college football. Uh, go out and buy the book and you'll you'll definitely uh, definitely learn something along the way. So, Andrew, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you, Bennett. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.